Good morning. It's Friday, the 11th of August, and this is Gobind Raj Ethiraj, based in Mumbai, India's financial capital, and in transit right now, as you can perhaps hear. Our top reports and themes of the day: the Reserve Bank of India does a little bit of a slate of hand of sorts, increases incremental cash reserve ratio, acknowledges higher inflation, leaves rates unchanged. On the other end, China is in deflation. What does that even mean? A record number of Indians filed tax returns, diving into these numbers. And the story of ferns and petals, the unicorn who could have been but decided not to. A conversation with Vikas Gudgudkia, the founder. This is a core report with Govindraj Athiraj. Well, the dreaded moments have come and gone. The Reserve Bank of India addressed food inflation as we speculated it would, but left interest rates unchanged, which was largely expected. Now, there was a googly of sorts. It asked all scheduled banks to maintain an incremental cash reserve ratio or ICRR of 10% with effect from August 12th. Now, this is ostensibly meant to absorb surplus liquidity in the system due to various factors, including the deposit of 2000 rupee currency notes. Now, even after this temporary ICRR, there will be adequate liquidity in the system to meet the credit needs of the economy, the Governor Shaktikanta Das said. Since the ICRR is only a temporary measure, the Reserve Bank would review it on or before September 8th. The existing CRR remains unchanged at 4.5%. The announcement of this CRR was a surprise move as it had not been imposed since demonetization in November 2016. Well, well. So the benchmark lending rate of 6.5% has been left alone for the third consecutive time. And now, the important part, the Reserve Bank of India is now projecting CPI or consumer price inflation based retail inflation at 5.4% for the rest of the year. Quick reminder, the last figure that came in was around 4.8% and economists have been on record on this station in recent weeks to say it was surely going to head upwards. The Reserve Bank also expects headline inflation to witness a spike in near months on account of supply disruptions due to adverse weather conditions. You might recall we spoke yesterday about this and how changing weather is almost the single biggest factor disrupting the agricultural economy and thus supply and prices of produce right now. This is not something we are actually prepared for. Maybe most of the world is not either, but that will not change how the poorer in India whose lives and livelihoods are linked to agriculture will be hurt the most. Meanwhile, for those who are seeking greater convenience in making payments, the Reserve Bank has proposed the launch of conversational payments on UPI, where the users can engage with an AI-powered system to make transactions, which will be initially available in Hindi and English. So efficiency is good, but too much efficiency, I feel, has some downsides. For example, I do hope there are sufficient last-second provisions to ensure I can stop the transaction if I don't want to go ahead with it, or if I change my mind, which always happens. Anyway. The Reserve Bank has also proposed to facilitate offline transactions on UPI using NFC or near-field communications to ensure speedy transactions in areas where internet or telecom connectivity is weak. Now, to get a sense on where the Reserve Bank's policy statements actually land, I reached out to Dr. Brinda Jagirdar, well-known economist, director on IDFC Bank, and former State Bank head of economic research. First of all, I think it's very interesting to note at this time that Governor, when he talked about the economy, he would usually say resilient robust but this time he said enhanced strength and stability that means the confidence in the economy is very much there mainly because 
See, we are not only growing at 6.5%. We are the fastest growing in the world. When you see the world is going into a recession, the economy here is growing. All our high-frequency indicators, they're all doing very well, especially the PMI, both for manufacturing and services, are doing very well, above 57. So, where the economy is concerned, the governor is very, very confident. And rural consumption, which seems to be lagging, rural consumption is also doing very well. So, we have growth coming in from consumption and we have investment, which has always been going strong. Now, so far, it was driven by the government capex, but the private sector also seems to have been willing to pitch in and has already started a capacity utilization at 76.6 is much higher than the long-term average of 73.6%. So, the private sector apparently is now quite buoyed by the economic situation and is willing to come in. So, now, the state that we have come here for GDP growth, now this needs to be re-fenced because there are a lot of headwinds in the global economy and not only global economy, even from within. Now, from within, the first concern that he talked about is, of course, inflation. And uh, interestingly, this time he said inflation, he mentioned that we need to get inflation closer to 4%. Earlier, he would say, okay, the top range, if it was 5 6%, he wouldn't show so much concern. But this time he said inflation, we want to get it closer to 4%. So, interestingly also, this time the headline inflation has gone up. Now, it was 4.2%, uh, then we gave 4.8% in July. And in August, it is expected to be about 6.5% when the numbers come out. But at the same time, core inflation, which had been sticky, the core inflation is coming down 5.2%, 5.0% and expected to be about 5.0% now. So, this inflation, the government is looking through because this is transitory. It is short-term, driven by a few commodity prices like tomato, but of course, cereals and pulses, these prices are also rising. Rising not just in India, but rising globally. So there is a food crisis globally and the governor wants to make sure and the government also makes sure that India is insulated from any shocks on this account. And from the external point of view, the governor talked about rising FPI inflows. FDI is not so robust, but FPI inflows are growing very strongly. As we all know that FPI inflows are very volatile. That is why the government has introduced this incremental CRR. That means the additional funds that are flowing in, which we need to be watchful about. The government says that we don't want all of this to flow into the economy. We want like a dam, a little bit of control on that. We want to make sure that not all of the money goes rushing in, but some of it is held back. So that is why the Reserve Bank has introduced incremental CRR. Yeah, and that looked like a bit of a googly, Brinda, because it last came in 2016 and it accompanied or followed demonetization. And one wonders why is the Reserve Bank reacting so suddenly at a time when we're still so unsure about so many other macro factors? You know, firstly, the governor said that already there's adequate liquidity in the economy. The 2000 rupee notes, 87% has come back into account. Government spending is going up and let's not forget this is an election year. So government spending would be quite robust going forward. Then RBI dividend is also added to liquidity. And of course, the capital flows. He's really concerned about the capital flows because nowhere in the world does any economy offer the kind of growth and opportunity as there is in India. So we will see money flocking into India. We will see a lot of uh, investments coming in. If they are long-term FDI, they most welcome. But if they're short-term hot money flowing in, we don't want this to destabilize the economy, the growth, which has now uh, showing enhanced strength and stability.
So that is why it's an incremental CRR. And it's, uh, as I think a lot of commentators also have commented on TV already, that the impact is going to be very marginal. It's not going to be much. It's more uh, like uh, being proactive and being more preparatory. So I don't think we should reach too much into this. Right. Brinda, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Govind. China in deflation. As India grapples with rising inflation and skyrocketing food inflation, our neighbour across the mountains, who we would like to be competitively viewed against on most days, is having the exact opposite problem. All this became very clear and obvious with the latest of July data when consumer and producer prices fell in China for the first time since 2020. Now, why is this happening to China, which is generally a vigorous and robust economy? And what can we take away from China's experience, even if tangentially? The first thing is that most countries like India have seen a post-pandemic surge in demand, which has not happened in China. Over there, consumer spending is muted and the country has been grappling with a long property slump, which has held back people from buying big and small ticket items, though seemingly more of the former. Bloomberg says a price war among car makers, for example, has added to deflationary pressures, while companies are also cutting prices to reduce the excess stock that they built up over the pandemic. The only area where prices are not falling is services, such as travel and restaurants, which has surged since pandemic restrictions were lifted. Falling prices are an interesting phenomenon. Once they start falling, consumers could well wait for longer to see where it settles. This in turn puts pressure on businesses for whom lower prices obviously mean lower revenue and profits. And all of this leads to a fairly vicious cycle of deflation. Right now in India, many companies are doing well because the cost of their raw materials has come down. And there are some interesting cases like edible oils, where prices have fallen and the consumer impact is positive because it's kept inflation on a relative basis low, but has been negative on companies who deal with it, like Adani Wilmar, who we again discussed yesterday. Bloomberg says in Japan, falling prices took hold in the 1990s and contributed to a prolonged period of stagnation that's still haunting the world's third largest economy. The country is still dealing with the question of how to spur economic growth in a sustainable way. India's tax department has better data. Could it target more effectively then? So more Indians are filing tax returns and paying tax. For the last year, that's 22-23, individual tax filers who disclosed an income below 5 lakh rupees per annum stood at almost 46.5 million, making it the highest category of tax filers. Data is showing. The category that disclosed income above 5 lakh rupees per annum but below 10 lakh rupees was the second highest, around 11 million tax files. The highest tax-paying income range of 1 crore rupees and above had 169,000 individuals. Now, this, of course, is one of India's biggest economic conundrums. Or maybe it's social too, which I will return to shortly. Hint, only for more insights, not a solution as yet. The growth of the number of taxpayers in the income bracket above 50 lakh rupees has been the highest compared to other income brackets. Prior to the pandemic, this stood at around 342,000 tax filers before taking a hit during the pandemic to about 263,000 tax filers. Now, this is over 500,000 or half a million tax filers. Broadly, more people have entered the taxable income and higher income slab categories because of better compliance and data collection through annual income statements. To get a sense on what the trends are telling us and how also the government can better expand its tax net by better or more efficient targeting, I reached out to Kuldeep Kumar, partner at Mainstay Tax Advisors, LLP, and an old PwC hat. Well, I think in last fiscal year, we have seen about 24% increase in the personal tax collection. 
that is very well explained. And if you will see the category of people who are filing returns more than 50 lakhs, that number has grown by 41%. Similarly, the other category of income group that has also shown a grown of 14%. So I think uh, that expansion of the higher income group has contributed to the growth in the number of the tax collection. And at the same time, the number of returns, you know, which are less than 5 lakhs, or I will call them annual returns, they have actually reduced last year, I mean, in the financial year 22-23. So earlier, if these were at a level of 74-75%, so these were 72% of return, or in exact number, it was 4.65 crore returns were less than 5 crore. So it means that whatever buoyancy we have seen, less than 1% of the taxpayer have majorly contributed to that growth. So let's focus on the absolutely the top end, that's 50 lakh and above and 1 crore and above. So what are the trends that you're seeing there versus what it could actually be? When I try to look at the data, I actually went into the situation, you know, now we have come out of the COVID situation and the COVID has impacted, COVID came into India sometime in January, February 2020 or so. And what I have seen the trend that for that financial year, if I will see there was a drop of 22.85%. I mean, the number of tax filers reduced from 3.42 to 2.63 lakhs in this top category. And similarly, that degrowth was also visible, which came down from 14.71 lakhs to 14.45 lakhs in other income group between 5 lakh to 50 lakh. And there was a reduction of 4%, minus 4% growth. But those who are getting income less than 5 lakh, that has grown by 14%. So I look at that number in that way that, you know, when this COVID came, a lot of uncertainty came. And I think the middle income group or the higher income group, if they were in the salary class, probably they were cut in the paychecks or they were the bonuses which were held. So that was effective in that year. But then soon the situation stabilized even during the COVID period. I mean, for the financial year 2021 and 2021 and 2021 too. So this category of more than 50 lakh, they have thereafter grown by 34%. So from 2.63 lakhs, they become 3.54. And then a year thereafter, 421, 22 to about uh, 5 lakh in number. So that I'm talking about those more than 50 lakh taxpayer category. And similarly, the other income category from 5 lakhs to 50 lakh. So they also grew from 14.5 lakh to 14.96 lakhs, a 6% growth. And then a year after then 14% growth, which taking their number to 17.57. But at the same time, the number of deal-return filers, actually they came down from 5.31 crore to 4.43 crore for the financial year 1920 and a small growth of 4.8%. And then went up again. So if you look at the absolute top deck, firstly, what is the number in terms of number of people who are, let's say, millionaires in this country who are paying tax? And how does that number compare to any other data point that we could look at, whether it's a luxury car or luxury homes and so on? Actually, that has been a very big, big challenge and the way the government is now using the data analytics and now we are seeing, you know, if you are buying or selling the house property or you are buying a car and if you are undertaking a foreign travel, you know, there are TCS provisions, taxes collected at source, you know, in these kind of expenditure. And even when you file a tax return, even if you don't have any income, but if you are spending more than, say, in electricity consumption for more than 1 lakh or you are spending more than 2 lakhs on the foreign travel, even if you don't have an income, you have to file the tax return. So I think the government has all these data points, but still the government is not able to see that number of uh, taxpayers actually who should be 
you know, falling in a category of 50 lakhs or more category. And that is because, you know, for example, the number of luxury cars which you see running on the road, that may not be collaborating with the 500,000 people only earning more than uh, 50 lakhs. The media have seen that, you know, when the DLF came out with one of their property and the whole stock was just sold in one day. So I think these are some of the things, I call it a circumstantial trends, probably that doesn't satisfy the government that they are still getting all the rightful taxes which they want to collect from the taxpayers. So, uh, as you said, the government does have a lot of technology. So, could it be maybe using that technology to maybe target much better? I mean, today there is a feeling that the targeting is quite wide and, you know, it's more like throwing a net and capturing all fish rather than the few fish that it should go after. No, I think they are becoming better year by year. And I think that when they know that more than 70% of the people are actually not having a return, they are filing the return. So I will not be surprised, but probably this is my ask from the government that now they have all the data like 26AS, AIS, TIS, these things are working very well. And I think now these kind of taxpayers should be presented simply the pre-filled return form you please download. And if you are happy or if you want to make any change, make a changes and complete the filing within 30 days so that, you know, the focus goes away. At the same time, now, government is also getting the information for about the foreign income, foreign sources by virtue of the information sharing agreement signed with the various countries. So, I think those people who have now declared everything in their return and which they are able to collaborate, at least nest taxpayer should not be slapped with the notices or, or should be asked to explain. I mean, the notice now should be issued only on an exceptional basis rather than, you know, if anybody is having a foreign income, you are absolutely going to audit them. So I think these kind of benefits now should get extended to the taxpayers as well. And taxpayers are also benefiting from the use of technology by the government. But yes, from the government perspective, I think the software is excellent. It's working very well. And probably we will see that uh, the chances of leakage of revenue are considerably now reduced as compared to the past. Right. Uh, Kuldeep, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Govind. Thank you for having me on the show. The company that could have raised funds but did not. Vikas Gudgutia comes from a family of flower retailers but has taken the venture to a place where few have attempted or even seemingly tried. Ferns and Petals, or FNP, has set up India's largest floral and gifting delivery network. It started by delivering same-day fresh flowers and then moved on to embracing the whole gifting space, including cakes, chocolates, plants, and of course, also went international along the way. The interesting thing about this business is that there are not too many people or competitors or players jumping in to replicate the model which usually happens or become unicorns. Speaking of which, Vikas, the founder, says he never wanted to raise capital and held out till last year when he raised pre-initial public offer funding of about 200 crore rupees from a private equity firm. Interestingly, Gutierrez's setbacks have come more from mistakes he's made like a reckless diversification rather than the boring business of flower retail or gifting. I caught up with him on the Core Reports weekend edition and asked him, among other things, what flowers India likes the most. When I started business, all these startup and PE, all these words were not existing. People used to do their own resources, you know, take money from here and there and start their business. It wasn't an organized supply of money. So that option was not there when I started. And what happened was that in the first seven years, by the time I broke even, I was already in debt. Serving debt is a pain. It took me three, four years to get rid of that debt, to become debt-free and start making money. So I've always been a very orthodox kind of a businessman. 
who realize that debt is a pain. So don't take loan, don't take cheap finance, whatever you earn, keep flowing back, keep flowing back. So I started making money, Affinity become a brand, we were doing very well, I had six, seven verticals running. But if you ask Vikas Nutia personally, I didn't even have a flat because I invested every penny that I earned back into the business to grow the business. And at one point of time, uh, when people realized that it's become a sizable big company with no debt and no private equity and nothing, and it's a profitable company year after year, that's the fruit I'm, I'm reaping because of that hard work of 15, 20 years where every single penny earned was invested back in the business. Don't forget to tune in tomorrow for the Core Reports Weekend Edition, a longer conversation on a single topic or person on most weeks. And among other news, a new media giant has been created. The Mumbai bench of the National Company Law Tribunal on Thursday approved a merger scheme between Z Entertainment and Sony. Now, this deal has been underway since December 21st, when the first agreement was signed. The merger will, of course, open up other interesting questions, including on who will run the company. Recently, the Securities Appellate Tribunal declined to overturn an interim order issued by the Securities and Exchange Board of India, which prohibited Z Chairman Emeritus Subhash Chandra Goenka and his son Puneet Goenka from serving as directors or executives of publicly listed companies. And before I go, for those who follow fashion and luxury, a big deal is imminent and another one led by an American company of a European major. Owner of the brand Coach, that's Tapestry, is in talks to buy Capri Holdings, parent of well-known fashion brands Michael Kors, Jimmy Choo and Versace. The Wall Street Journal says the deal which has been under discussion for months could be announced soon, barring any last-minute snacks. Capri has a market value of about $4 billion. Tapestry is around $10 billion. Including a typical premium, a deal could value Capri in the high single-digit billions. Beck & Company says the Wall Street Journal have been scooping up fashion brands in a bid to take on LBMH and Gucci parent Kerrick, but are still dwarfed by the European giants which have been striking deals of their own, the WSJ says. Yes, most if not all of these brands are available in most cities in India. On that note, that's it from me. Have a great weekend ahead and see you on Monday. This was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in that is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening. <laughs>